I've come for you. You called me from the inside. Your tears, your desires of your soul, your brokenness of heart have all moved me to you. Don't you know that the anxiety I have for you is far more than you could ever have for yourself? My child, learn to talk to me like a child talks to his mother. Let there be no barriers between you and me. I know you better than anyone else, and my conversation is simple, humble. Nowhere will you find the understanding, the consolation, the appreciation that I have. I love you infinitely more than anyone else does. You're never alone. I'm as near to you right now as your nose is to your face, waiting, ready to share your burdens and solve your problems. No human being is capable of giving the perfect friendship, which I offer to you now. I know you so much more than you know yourself. Why do you treat me as a stranger? Come to me with no fear or anxiety or doubt. Have confidence in my love. I wish to call you my friend. Earthly trials are going to come and go rapidly. Even the longest life on earth is so short. But this is not your home. Your home is with me in perfect unending happiness. Stay close to me and you'll find peace. Don't let any passing tribulation dishearten you. And above all things, rest in me. They first took off his clothes. Then they took long leather thongs with steel pellets or lead pellets on the end and beat him across the back until he could hardly stand up. Then they put a crown of thorns on his brow and his face was bleeding. And they laughed at him and they spit on him and they mocked him. And with one snap of his finger, 72,000 angels had already drawn their swords ready to come to his rescue and wipe this planet out of existence in the universe. And Jesus said, no, to this end was I born. He wasn't just another revolutionary. He wasn't just another hippie. He was not just another great man. He was God in the flesh. And oh, the ethics that he taught. Never a man spake like that man. When you get hit on one side, he says, turn the other cheek. He never said what to do after that. But he did say, forgive 70 times seven, count that out. Jesus taught that we're to forgive. He taught a revolution in the way we're to live. He taught us that it wasn't just our outward actions that God judges, but it's the inward thoughts and intents. And he dragged and lifted and hauled that cross 
He didn't squirm, he didn't yell, he didn't scream. He just took it and said, Lord, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. When he died on that cross, they nailed him, they put the nails in his hands. And you know what he said? Forgive them, they know not what they do. Forgive them. Could you forgive somebody that's putting nails in your hands and you know you didn't deserve it? Then look at the death he died. Did ever a man die like Jesus? The lightning flashed and the thunder roared and the earth began to shake. And even the soldiers confessed that this must be the Son of God. And if one that can see Jesus on that cross and not be touched has a heart of stone. And then, on the cross, he said, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? And then he dropped his head and said, it's finished. What did he mean? He meant your plan of salvation was finished. God can now forgive you of all your sins because Jesus had finished God's plan for your salvation. Because you see, God knows every one of you by name. He has the hairs of your head numbered. And this is the thing we will be most impressed with when we see him in heaven. Because you see, when we get to heaven, we're going to find that his hands suffered when they drove those nails in. And then when they picked him up and hung him between heaven and earth and the terrible jolt that tore his hands. And the wound was so great that Thomas could put his own hands in those holes. And Jesus will wear those scars for eternity. And when I look at the cross, I see at least three things. I see sin. The most sinful place in the history of the world is the cross. Jesus became the most sinful man that ever lived. You know why? The scripture says he became sin for us. He had never known sin. All of a sudden, he not only had the sins of the people of that generation, but he had the sins of all mankind. Every person that will ever live, he had the sins on him. He became guilty of every single sin. Think of a person that had never sinned and all of a sudden every sin he's guilty of. His suffering was 10,000 times worse than that of the average man who would be crucified. He was suffering spiritually when he cried, My God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? The suffering hands of Jesus, I see sin. But I also see something else on the cross. I see the love of God. I, I, can't ex I can't describe it. There's no way to describe God's love. It's too deep, it's too high, it's too broad, it's too great. The New Testament writers had to invent a new word to describe the love of God. There was no word for love in the whole Greek language that could describe the supernatural love of God, so they invented agape. And if he bore our sins on the cross, then God can still be just and still be the justifier.
Because if God had just come along and forgiven you without somebody paying the price, he would have been a liar. And his moral universe would have blown up and exploded like an atomic bomb. Somebody had to pay the price. Either you or some sinless person that would be acceptable to God. And that person was the Lord Jesus Christ. So a few weeks ago I was in prayer and I had a vision of Jesus in a waterfall. I knew that there was a school of evangelism conference that was going on in Moravian Falls and so I figured that that's where God was calling me to be. Over the next couple of weeks I felt the pool to be there grow stronger and the interesting thing was that I didn't even particularly want to go. But the night before I prayed for confirmation and I, I received a dream that was confirming that I should be there. So I hopped in my truck on a whim and I drove almost six hours to North Carolina. When I got there, I went to the very first service and it was made abundantly clear that God didn't want me there. I can't explain it. There wasn't anything particularly wrong with the people or the conference. Just my spirit testified that I wasn't meant to be there. And so I left, but I was frustrated. I said, God, why did I just drive six hours out to North Carolina? so I could come sleep in my truck in a Walmart parking lot. <laughs> and as I laid there, it dawned on me that Jesus was showing me the vision of him in a waterfall, not at a conference. And then it all hit me. God didn't call me out here for another prayer line or impartation or for some big prophetic moment that I may have thought was going to occur. He called me out here to rest. And I started to think about the previous months and all the toil the last year, all the prayer, all the striving, all the going, all the grinding. And then I realized he just wanted me to rest at the falls with him. So the next day I got up and I went to the falls and I sat there. I started to read my Bible. Started to walk through the grass barefoot, catch lizards with my hands. The interesting thing is that as I sat there and rested, I met a guy named Brian and he was telling me how he had just gotten a year sober. His mom had been praying for him for 23 years. He said God saved him. He said he was there that day because he wanted to get baptized. <laughs> he said that the night before he was praying God would send somebody to do it. So that's what we did. After that I went to Prayer Mountain. I feel like a part of me died there. I ventured out into the woods and sat with the trees for a few hours and I found myself laughing because I realized that I had just drove six hours to go sit in the woods and talk to God. But something spiritual happened in that moment. I died to all my desires, the good ones, the bad ones. I found rest in Jesus. I realized I just didn't care anymore. I realized I just wanted to stay here. You see, I've been here before. God's brought me to this place to rest multiple times, and something always pulls me out of it. Christian culture, people telling me who I am and what I'm supposed to be doing, people getting in my head, striving, pride. It always seems to creep back in and drive me. It's not that I'm doing things for selfish gain, but I'm doing things with the wrong intention. But I just finally learned that it was time to sit on the ground and die. What will be will be. And I'll glorify God the whole way.
You're struggling with addiction, but you're wondering why God is not answering your prayers, at least in the way that you think he should. He's not giving you the power to overcome them. Listen to me, you keep fighting because you're not alone in wondering why God does not answer our prayers in the way that we think he should, why he doesn't give us the power to overcome worry and anxiety and stress and addictions and you name it. We're all struggling with something. There's a lot of people struggling with depression and they pray and they wonder why God does not heal them of depression. And it's the same way with addictions. You wonder why God is not giving us the power. Sometimes we even feel like God is far away, but he's not. And he is delivering you. He's delivering all of us from whatever we're struggling with. If we're faithful Christians and we're trusting in him, we just don't know how. And sometimes God moves slowly as far as the human timetable is concerned. Maybe he's wanting to know if we're going to give up. I don't speak for God. I don't know that that's the case, but I know that you cannot give up the fight. Don't ever think that you are going to lose this fight because God will deliver you. How? When? That's up to God. Now, let's say a person is struggling with severe depression. God is going to heal them of that. That may take place in heaven. We may have to fight that for the rest of our life. And I'm not trying to discourage anyone. I'm just saying you're going to have to fight something. You're going to have to fight something, even if it's just sin in general for the rest of your life. Don't give up. That's the key. Keep fighting. Don't listen to Christians who put you down. They have things that they excuse in their own lives, and then they want to be so judgmental to people that are struggling with addiction. Don't listen to any of that. Put God first, believe in his power, and keep fighting. That's what I have to do. That's what you have to do. That's what everyone has to do if they want to live faithfully to Jesus, because everyone is struggling with something. And the key is to never give up. God will help you. God is helping you. Believe that. Believe that with all your heart. And that's where trust comes in. Even if I don't know all the ways that he's helping me, I know that he is because I trust him to do so. Let's tell you a bit about the devil first. So that you've got a clear picture in your mind of what we're praying against. First of all, the Bible does not paint him as a horned creature with a forked tail. That's the sort of thing that makes us laugh at him. Take him less than seriously. See, the Bible says he's a real person. The Bible never calls the devil it, always he. Next, the Bible says that he has a heart and a mind and a will. And if a heart and a mind and a will don't make a personality, I don't know what does. It talks about the devil's feelings, talks about his thoughts, and it talks about his motives. And that means to me a person. So the devil is not just a, a kind of vague word to sum up all the forces of evil in the world. No, he is a person in his own right. And if there were no human beings at all, Satan would still exist. Now, Jesus himself took Satan desperately seriously. He never made a joke about him. He never laughed at him. He never caricatured him. Here are some of the titles that Jesus gave Satan. He said he is the prince of this world. When Satan offered Jesus all the kingdoms of the world, Jesus did not say they are not yours to give, because he knew perfectly well they were Satan's to give. And it is a, a horrible thought, if you really realize it, that the world in which we live is ruled over by Satan. He is the prince of this world, but let's take it a step further. Do you know that another title Jesus gave to Satan? He said he's not only the ruler or prince of this world, he is the God of this world. The only other person beside his heavenly father to whom Jesus ever applied the word God was Satan. He said, my heavenly father is God of everything. 
but of this world Satan is God which means very simply not only that Satan controls this world and is able to manipulate science and education and politics for his own ends more than that Satan is actually the real God whom most people on earth worship whether they know it or not that behind so much religion behind so much activity Satan is the one who's being worshipped he's the person and even by some who go to church and chapel on Sunday in reality he's their God for they worship the things that he offers them they want the things of the world that he belongs to and rules over rather than setting their mind on the things that are above where Jesus is and if you want this world and if you want the things of this world then I give you a piece of advice make Satan your God if you want this world he's a wonderful God to have because he'll give it to you there's always a price to pay when the bill comes in you may not be quite so happy but he'll give it to you he can give you money he can give you fame he can give you anything you want because it's his to give where have you been Satan says God in the book of Job well I've been patrolling the earth I've been looking around my estate and he had now let's get this clear that doesn't mean that God is helpless in this world it does mean and we've got to think this through that God is allowing Satan to be prince of this world and God of this world he's allowed it and people say what does God think he's doing allowing that well I would just say my only answer to that one is what's he doing allowing you to be like you are why should you blame him for allowing Satan to rebel when he allowed you to the answer is very simple he's a father and he will not force any of his creatures to go his way and he gives you freedom to rebel and we can't grumble about him giving the angels freedom though they have superior intelligence and strength because he gave us the same freedom and we've used it in the wrong way do you know there are two books in the Bible that the devil hates more than any other two books in the Bible out of all 66 there are two that say more about him than any others and it's these that he has attacked more than any others they are the one at the beginning and the one at the end Genesis and Revelation and you know why he hates them because Genesis describes his devices and Revelation describes his doom and he hates those two books and there has been more scholarly attack on the book of Genesis than any other book and more attempt to turn it into myth and legend and away from fact than any other book in the Bible why because Satan doesn't want you to believe that Genesis 3 ever happened he doesn't want you to know how he got hold of Eve he doesn't want you to believe that he said what he did to that first married couple and he attacks the book of Genesis but the other book which he hates more than any other is the book of Revelation because as you read through that book you come to a point where it says that the devil himself will be cast into the lake of fire do you know that Jesus told us to pray every day about the devil do you know that the original prayer that he taught his disciples when they said Lord teach us to pray he said pray like this say dad in heaven then pray for the things he wants his name his will his kingdom then he said pray for the things you need you need food you need forgiveness then he said finish by praying this deliver us from the evil one we've turned evil into a thing in our thinking it's not a thing it's a person there's no evil anywhere in the universe apart from persons 
Evil is an intensely personal thing. There's no love in the universe apart from persons who love. And so evil is personal. And Jesus said, pray daily, deliver us from the evil one. Start your prayer by thinking of your dad in heaven, but end your prayer by thinking of the devil on earth and go out to face him. Shalom, my name is Greg Hirschberg. I live in Georgia currently, born and raised in New York City. Uh, 64 years old, when I was a little boy, I was raised in a very Jewish family. I was raised Orthodox, walked to my synagogue every Shabbat, went to Hebrew school two days a week. It was uh, pretty austere. My uh, mom sat behind the curtain. My dad wasn't too into it as I could tell, but he loved my mom and my mom was Orthodox, so he went along with it. I knew I was a Jew. And there's something special about being a Jew. Um, a Jew isn't just a religion, it's a nationality. When I'd be hanging around friends and somebody say, I'm Puerto Rican or I'm Italian, I'd always say I'm Jewish. But then I got to a point there was so much anti-Semitism in the Bronx that I didn't want to be Jewish anymore. I'm not so sure I was ever tied into Judaism, to be honest with you. So I got pulled into some Eastern cults. I got very involved in martial arts. Martial arts sometimes is just not a sport, it's a religion. And I had somewhat of a cult leader and he started to teaching us about the Kundalini energy and sun postures and meditations. And I was kind of into it, but it was a little confusing. Well, lo and behold, I married this swimsuit model and um, we were thinking about where to go on our vacation, our honeymoon. And um, this cult leader, if you will, and I don't know what else to call him because it was a cult, um, he said, you need to go to Israel. And he was so influential in my life, such a powerful influence that I thought, Israel, I'm thinking Jamaica. I'm thinking on the beach, to be honest with you, I'm thinking about partying and getting high and just laying out. I'm not thinking Israel. I had no desire to go to Israel, but there was such a pull on my life. This is hard for you to believe, but the next day I was on the train going to work on a Manhattan, and I sat next to somebody who I never saw before and they said, have you ever thought about going to Israel? So I'm not the sharpest tool in the shed, but I'm no bowling ball either. So I decided maybe I should go to Israel. But I was so convinced that I was gonna have a lousy time in Israel that I put a week of the Greek Isles on the back end of the trip. We go to Israel, my wife and I at the time, right? Get married, go to Israel, leave New York City on an LL flight, get into Ben Gurion Airport, and we immediately take a flight to Elat. I was scuba diving in the Red Sea. We were water skiing on top of the Red Sea. Uh, we were going out to restaurants, partying, dancing, having a great time. Then we came to Jerusalem about five days later. There's an Armenian corner and a Christian corner and a Muslim corner, and it was shocking to me. And I didn't really enjoy it, but we went out to some great restaurants. We just saw some sights on our own. We're having a pretty good time, but I'm thinking, I gotta get to Greece. Well, we had one day left. One day left to trip. And I said to my wife, let's get a car and let's go up north. And so she said, why? I said, I don't know. I don't know. She goes, no. she goes, where do you want to go? I said, you know, I remember hearing something about a place called Tabor, a mount where something pretty special happened. Let's just go there. So we drove up and we didn't know where we were going. So they were hitchhikers. It was 1989. So a guy was hitchhiking and so I took him where he was hitchhiking and I look over to the left and I see this mount. And it's very strange, but the mount was calling my name. I felt as if somebody had a rod and they casted it off the top of that mount. 
and the hook went into my chest. And as I'm driving up, I got a little exasperated. So in reality, we're looking for this transfiguration mount because something happened there, right? And I get up to the mountain and I got out of the, the car and I ran to this covering and there was a plaque and it said the Basilica to the Transfiguration. And I heard a voice and the voice said, come away and pray with me. But I didn't know how to pray. So I emptied myself and closed my eyes and I saw a vision. And I know that sounds weird, but people all over the Bible saw visions. And I went to a trance-like state. And I know that sounds new age, but Balaam went into a trance-like state in the Bible. And others have. And I saw the eastern sky open up. And I saw somebody come out of that eastern sky. And it came down and descended. And his face shone like the sun, and his clothes was white as light. And he pressed himself up against me. And the first thing he said is, I love you. And I remember crying for a really long time. My wife says maybe it was about 20 minutes. And I looked back and it wasn't tears of joy and it wasn't tears of pain. It was like a sanctification, it was like a cleansing. Like all the crap, all the Eastern thought, all the nonsense, all the religion just came out of me. I didn't know anything about the Holy Spirit. I didn't know that God can enter your heart and, and live in your tabernacle. So I thought God was on the mountain. And I remember talking to God and saying, I'm so sorry, I have to leave, I don't want to leave. But I hope one day I can come back here. Two kids from the Bronx, punk kids from the Bronx, go to Israel on their honeymoon to party. And we come back born again, saved, knowing Yeshua as our Messiah. And I gotta tell you, I was shocked because I was taught as a young man that Jesus had nothing to do with us. I thought he was the head of the Catholic Church, and Moses, if you will, is the head of the Jewish synagogue. But then I turned over this New Testament expecting to see something really Christian, something hardcore Gentile, and said, this is the genealogy of, of Yeshua the Messiah, the son of Abraham. I'm like, what? I'm in shock, the son of David. I'm in shock. I'm reading this genealogy and it's purely a Jewish genealogy. I get into the other parts of the gospel and I see he's circumcised on the eighth day like me. His mother goes through purification rites, Tohar, like my mom. He has opinion have been and dedicated, like I was. Man, I can't believe it. So to this day, when they say to me, you know, Rabbi Greg, Jesus was Jewish, I'm like, what's with the past tense? It doesn't matter, but that's a fact. And the crazy thing is, I was secular, right? How did Jesus, the head of the church, bring me back to my Judaism? So if you believe in Yeshua, you don't become less Jewish, you kind of become more Jewish. Jesus never gave up being Jewish. He's born a Jew, he was raised a Jew, he was Torah observant, he died a Jew, he was buried a Jew, he rose a Jew, he ascended a Jew, and he's coming back as a Jew. I never look back. I'm so thankful for what God has done for me. I feel so free. I feel so alive more than I've ever felt. And you get to a place, man, when you meet Yeshua, 
where he becomes enough. And I'm here to tell you, if God isn't enough, nothing will be enough. You'll search and search and search the world over. You'll go from one high to the next. You'll go from one thing to the next. But when you meet him, all bets are off. It's done. The search is over. I've got 66 books of the Bible, and they're written over a course of 15 to 1600 years. You have 40 contributing writers. I don't say authors because God's the author. You have 40 writers of these 66 books. Now think about it. They lived in three different continents, and they spoke three different languages, and they lived over a span of 1600 years. You, you take all their writings, you put it to get, together, and you get this perfectly congruent book called the Bible. I mean, how ridiculous is that? I mean, okay, go back 1600 years. We go back, we're, we're right around 500 AD. Pick a guy and tell him to write a book, a chapter, right? Then go 100 years and go to a different country, a guy that speaks a different language, tell him to write another chapter. Then go another 100 years, do the same thing, do this for 1600 years, come to 20, 2019, 2020, it's a time period, and tell me you got a book that makes any sense. Okay, but let's, let's sweeten the deal. If you look at the Old Testament, the Old Testament was written by several different writers living over the course of 1100 years. So they wrote this, this, this Old Testament, which is Genesis through Malachi, was written over, over 1100 years. We have several writers, correct? Now, these writers made predictions about the coming Messiah, Jesus Christ, okay? Predictions like he'd be born in Bethlehem, he'd be born of a virgin, he'd ride into Jerusalem on a donkey, he'd be betrayed by a friend, he'd be betrayed for 30 pieces of silver, that 30 pieces of silver. It's actually in the Old Testament. Would buy a potter's field, I mean, on and on and on. There's 300 of these predictions in this Old Testament, okay? So Jesus comes along, okay? So, so, so the last book, the last book is written 400 years before Jesus was born. So we've got 1,100 years, the last book's written 400 years before Jesus, and Jesus comes along and fulfills every single one of the 300 predictions. What are the chances? But there's actually this scientist named Dr. Peter Stoner, and I have his little book. Okay, this book, I went to buy it on Amazon because it's out of print for years, and it, it was costing $800, but a pastor knew how much I loved this, and he bought it for me as a gift, so here is the book, okay? But this is a scientist who lived in the 20th century, and he said, what are the, and his expertise was probability, okay? So what do I mean by probability? Um, simple probability, if I've got a five gallon paint bucket, and I got nine white tennis balls and one yellow tennis ball, and I put them in there and I shake them all up and I blindfold you, and I say, okay, pick out one ball, Scott. What the chance of you picking out the one yellow tennis ball is one in 10. Well, this guy's an expert on it, right? So he doesn't do this research alone. He gathers 600 science students from 12 different classes. And they go on this massive project to figure out what are the chances of any human being from the time of Jesus' birth to the end of the 20th century, 2,000 years, any human being on earth could fulfill just eight of those prophecies. Just eight, okay? Now, they picked really simple ones, all right? Number one, Christ to be born in Bethlehem. Micah writes that. Christ to be preceded by a messenger. Isaiah, in a totally different generation, writes that. Christ to enter in Jerusalem on a donkey. Zechariah, in a completely different generation. Christ to be betrayed by a friend. Christ to be sold for 30 pieces of silver. The money is to be thrown into God's house. Um, Christ to be silent before his accusers. Christ to be executed by crucifixion as a thief. That's the eight prophecies they picked. And the crucifixion wasn't even a thing yet. I know. That's that, what's that, crazy. I know. There, there's some prophecies there that 
I mean, they didn't even invent crucifixion right. until. So right. when this was written, it wasn't even it didn't right. even exist, right? right? So they go on hours and hours of research, study, doing all that they do that these science these scientists do, and their results was actually studied by a third party. And that third party was the American National Scientific Council. And you know what the American National Scientific Council said? What they found was conservative. So what I'm about to share with you is conservative. They said the chances of any human being on earth from the time of Jesus till the end of the 20th century of fulfilling those eight prophecies is one in 10 to the 17th power. Dr. Stoner said, let me make this palatable for the average man and woman. So he said, if you take a, a silver dollar, which is about that big, and if you have 10 to the 17th silver dollars, you have no place on earth to store them. You have to just spread them out on the ground. And if you have that many silver dollars, you will cover the entire state of Texas, two feet deep with silver dollars. Wow. Wow, wow, wow. Now, gather all those silver dollars, mark one of them, shuffle them all up, distribute them over the entire state of Texas, blindfold a guy in Oklahoma, put him on a helicopter, start flying over the state of Texas. The state of Texas, it takes 17 hours to drive through. Fly over the state of Texas at any time he says let down. The guy gets out. He's still blindfolded, right? He picks one silver dollar. Chances of picking out that one silver dollar wow. is the chances that any human being could fulfill these eight prophecies over 2,000 years. And Jesus didn't fulfill eight. He fulfilled all 300. No matter how bad you've been, no matter how many sins you've committed, God loves you. I could talk all evening just on that. And God is not only a God of judgment, but he's and a God of love, but he's also a God of mercy and forgiveness. He wants to forgive you. He offers his hand of mercy to every one of you that are willing to open your heart and receive him into your heart. You know the Ten Commandments? Have you ever broken one of them? If you've broken one of them one time, you've broken them all. Isaiah said, all we like sheep have gone astray. We've turned everyone his own way. Instead of going God's way, we go our own way. And we get lost. And we are lost. There are two roads. There's a broad road, well lighted, a lot of fun. And most of us are on that road. But then there's a narrow road. The narrow road leads to heaven and paradise. Jesus is on that narrow road. And you stand at the crossroads. Which road are you going to take? You have to make a choice. You say, oh, I'm not going to make a choice. You have to. God has arranged for the fact that you cannot ignore that great decision. Because the end of the broad road is death. Natural death, but primarily spiritual death. Separated from God forever. Our souls separated from God. And that's called hell. I'm going to ask you tonight, to, as you stand at that crossroads, to make the right decision and come to Christ and open your heart to Him. You might have thought you were a Christian, but you're not sure. There's a little voice down inside that says, you're not sure that you need to make this decision and be sure.
as it were, the noise of thunder. One of the four beasts saying, Come and see. And I saw, and behold, a white horse. There's a man going round taking names and he decides who to free and who to blame. Everybody won't be treated all the same. There'll be a golden ladder reaching down when the man comes around. The hairs on your arm will stand up at the terror in each sip and in each sup. Will you partake of that last offered cup or disappear into the potter's ground when the man comes around? Hear the trumpets, hear the pipers one hundred million angels singing Multitudes are marching to the big kettle drum Voices calling, voices crying Some are born and some are dying It's Alpha and Omega's kingdom come And the whirlwind is in the thorn tree the virgins are all trimming their wicks. The whirlwind is in the thorn tree. It's hard for thee to kick against the pricks. Till Armageddon, no shalom, no shalom. Then the father hen will call his chickens home. The wise men will bow down before the throne And at his feet they'll cast their golden crowns When the man comes around Whoever is unjust, let him be unjust still Whoever is righteous, let him be righteous still Whoever is filthy, let him be filthy still Listen to the words long written down When the man comes around Hear the trumpets, hear the pipers One hundred million angels singing Multitudes are marching to the big kettle drum Voices calling, voices crying some are born and some are dying It's Alpha and Omega's kingdom come And the whirlwind is in the thorn tree The virgins are all trimming their wicks The whirlwind is in the thorn tree It's hard for thee to kick against the pricks in measured a hundred weight and penny pound when the man comes around
midst of the four beasts. And I looked, and behold, a pale horse, and his name that sat on him was Death, and Hell followed with him.